Bonjour, I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, welcoming you to Café Terence in Paris's troisième arrondissement. Well, my guest today is Jacques Pepin, author of over 30 cookbooks, uh, a teacher, an author, uh, a great American, as he's become, and perhaps most uh, fascinating to me, a man with a, an eighth grade French education who became a PhD candidate at Columbia University. So chapeau for that. All the other work almost pales in comparison, Jack. I'm very impressed. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Very impressed. Uh, born in 1938 in Bourg en Bresse, uh, which many of us know for the beautiful and delicious white chickens, yeah. of which you have written uh, many, many books about chickens. Talk about that particular chicken and what makes it so special. Well, you know, beautiful white plumage, red cock, blue feet, bleu, blanc, rouge, the color of the French flag. You know, so, and uh, okay, th those are. are when I was a kid, of course, they were in the in the field and they are raised naturally with, uh, you know, eating uh, the cow go first and the and the chicken goes after the cow to eat what the cow left over and then the the sheep goes after to finish the whole thing. So there is a, a process for a farmer to uh, to feed the animal and uh, certainly the poulet the rice was uh, expensive when I was a kid so uh, still expensive here in Paris it's very expensive now yes and, what, uh, what is it that, uh, that characterizes the taste that makes it so I mean if, if you're just a normal eater will you immediately know you're eating something special well you may not like it I mean uh, I've given to people so oh this is strong people who are used to a supermarket chicken without too much taste this has more taste. The meat is more attached to the bone. You have to pull out. It's a bit tougher. So it, you know, it's a bit different. If you're used to uh, that type of chicken, it is. Uh, but very often, people who are you that I said to to the simple, I mean, um, you know, supermarket chicken you may find it uh, not particularly good. Well, I, I would disagree with them. I okay. going back to the beginning, or I, I think there were two events in your life that I, I believe have had a, a huge effect on your formation. Uh, one being uh, Jeanette, your mother, and, and the other being the war. I remember many years ago, uh, you constructed something on television, which I didn't know at the time was known as uh, Foie Fromage. Uh, oh. And it, it seems that you have, and your book coming up in the fall, Jacques Pepin, Cooking My Way, Recipes and Techniques for Economical Cooking, uh, suggests that uh, learning what to do with les restes has been a significant part of your early growth and has continued to be applied in your cooking at many, many different levels. Yeah, I'm very miserly in the kitchen, but that comes from my mother during the war. It was a difficult time and she could really cook with nothing. And uh, I think you're referring to the fromage flour that my father used to do that I still do at home. And uh, the recipe is great because it's never the same recipe. I mean, what happened is that you eventually, I mean, I buy cheese all the time and it get a bit molded and so forth. So you scratch the mold, you pick up different type of cheese. We used to pound it by hand, but now with beautiful things like a food processor, you put it in there with a couple of cloves of garlic, a big jab of white wine and the pepper on top of it and you make a puree of it. Uh, and then you can put that in a little container and freeze it. Uh, this is great on toast. 
just on toast, or you can put it under the broiler, it browns, serve it as a garnish for a salad. Uh, it's a way of cooking which is very important. For me, as a professional chef, I, am, uh, I admire someone in the kitchen who can absolutely use everything leftover and create new dish out of it. Uh, I'm more impressed by this, but someone who does what I call punctuation cooking, you know, using little bottles to make comma, dot, comma, dot all around the plate and doing a super, super uh, aesthetic, I mean, plate uh, that doesn't really uh, touch me very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's a, it's, it talks to your creativity, be able to make something out of nothing. And I, and I think you're right. right. I mean, I, I think we all try to do that. I, Similarly, get a similar pleasure to go to the refrigerator and find two eggs and a little bit of leftover tarragon and whip together an omelet uh, from, sure. from thin air. Same idea, yeah. but not not at your level. Uh, but, I'm but sorry. My, but my wife used to call uh, fridge soup. Fridge soup. I open the refrigerator and whatever is there, you know, a piece of a carrot, wilted lettuce, whatever, we do a soup with it. And that I still do. I mean, it's a way of cleaning up the refrigerator. Well, I think it's also ingrained, and I guess in the way you were brought up, in in recognizing, yeah. uh, and I, you know, certainly, I living in France as I have for the last fourteen years, uh, nothing is thrown away, absolutely well, nothing. Well, Everything has good. has has a use. You you indicated you I just read, after many many years, The Apprentice, and you uh, not the Donald uh, Donald Trump apprentice, but but your <laughs> apprentice, the good the good <laughs> apprentice. Well, that was a few a few years before it. Well, yeah, but uh, talk about you at a very early age knew you wanted to cook. What what was it that made that so significant to you early on? Well, this was the way life was at that time. You know, I mean, I'm 88 years old, so you know, 80 years ago, uh, my mother had a restaurant. We were in the kitchen. Uh, my brother, I mean, could never have. Uh, we would never have say coming back from school, I'm bored. My mother said, you are what? Bored? <laughs> <laughs> there was always something to do, cleaning the bottle, washing one thing or another, you know. So uh, so this was the way it was. And, you know, at that time, we didn't have the telephone. because we didn't have a television. We didn't have a radio. We didn't have the telephone. Uh, so life was, in a sense, simpler than, uh, than it is now for a young kid. Uh, my father was a cabinet maker. My mother was a cook, so this was it. I'm one or the other, you know. I never thought that I could be a doctor or something like that. It was so far away from uh, from our life. So you know, I went into uh, uh, I was in school, and in France, as you know, you have to go to school until the end of primary school. And I was in the class when I was thirteen, so I took my final exam, and then I went to work. I went into apprenticeship, and that was not uncommon at the time. So I had other apprentices in the kitchen with me. And uh, would you, if you would, uh, talk a bit about the process of apprentissage, and to what extent does that still exist here in France or in America? Well, it doesn't exist in the same way. <clears throat> I mean, when you teach a kid, which is 12, 13, 14 years old, is different than uh, I've been dean at the French Culinary Institute in New York. I teach at Boston University. I was still there the week before last. And usually people who are there are, have been to college. They are uh, in their late 10, uh, early 20s even. So you teach them in a totally different way than a kid who is 10, 12 years old when I was in the kitchen as an apprentice. Uh, first, at that time, still now to a certain extent, there was no recipe. 
the, the very recipe in the kitchen. You go to a certain restaurant and you try to duplicate exactly the way it's done there according to the chef. So it's a question of, uh, of uh, imitating and doing. So the chef will tell you, do this. And you would never have said why, because you would have said, I just told you, that's why. Uh, that's what I would, the end of the explanation. So I worked for like a year this way, cleaning up the stove, uh, putting a coal and, and, and wood into the stove and, uh, and feeding the dog, and then starting to peel uh, asparagus and chopped parsley and every chicken and scale fish and all that kind of work until the day, maybe a year, a year after, after I was in apprenticeship, the chef said, you, at that time, my name was you, and then he called me Jacques, but you started the stove tomorrow. I said, I started the stove tomorrow. I said, I, I, I don't know how to. So, and somehow through, you know, it was a, a different way of learning. So it was a way of imitating. So you learn by osmosis. So I went at the stove and I started working at the stove. It was uh, a type of learning that, uh, and still when I work at the Plaza in Paris, 10 years later, we cut a tomato one way. I would never have thought of turning the tomato, cutting it the other way. Someone had done that, so why, why would you do that? So uh, it's totally different than now where the chef say very often, make sure they know I'm the one who created that, to do that type of creation in the kitchen. At that time, no. At the Plaza Atene, we did uh, a famous uh, like lobster souffle, where we were 48 chefs in the kitchen. I'm sure 48 of us could have done the lobster souffle. You would never have known who has done it. So you work in a restaurant to try to duplicate exactly the recipe of that restaurant. And then you move to another one and you do the same thing. And what's left for me, I can close my eyes. You give me a striped bass. I said that the striped bass of the pavilion in New York. I can remember the taste. Or the, the chicken of my mother. Or the lobster souffle of the Plaza Athene. You remember those tastes. You know, that's how we learn. And, and to and today, uh, it's pretty much the same thing. I suspect when you're when you're cooking at home, a lot of these memories are almost a, a, a physical memory. Yeah, they are very visceral. I mean, the, the food that you have as a child stay with you the rest of your life, and to a certain extent. Uh, but when I tell, I will tell a young chef, you know, you start working somewhere. They say, what should I do? I say, you do to that restaurant because you like the restaurant, you like the chef. And uh, so you do exactly what the chef tells you to do. And you have to look at the food through the eye of that chef, you know, through the sense of aesthetic and the sense of taste that that chef has, regardless of whether it coincides exactly with your sense of taste and your sense of aesthetic, it's immaterial. You do it the way it's done there. You do it for a couple of years, you absorb this, and then you move to another chef for a couple of years, and another one too. And after eight, 10 years, you have absorbed an enormous amount of point of view, different way. And then at that point, you can give it back. At that point, you start, you know, uh, analyzing it and uh, uh, through your own taste, through your own sense of taste and aesthetic. And then you start doing your own thing. Because ultimately, you cannot escape yourself. You know, if I, if I take someone to, the, the five best restaurants in Paris or five best restaurants in New York, you know, or 10, I will pick up one or two. I say those are extraordinary. I'll pick up two or three. I say those are really very good. And I may pick up one or two. I said it's fine, but I don't really get it. Uh, and you, you, your taste may be totally different. But ultimately, it's purely a, a narcissistic reflection on your own taste. You know, I pick up the one that I like, but it coincides exactly with my sense of taste, with my sense of aesthetic. 
uh, and it's never the same. So you cannot escape yourself. At some point, you will do your own food and uh, it's going to be the way it is uh, for you, but not necessarily for someone else. I mean, at this point in your career, even more, more recently, uh, how much, I, I don't want to use the word ego because you, you, you're such a non-egotistical guy from what, I, what I've seen and what, I, what I'm sensing now. Not that you don't have an ego, but uh, a lot of chefs do in a sense, in, in, a, in a bad way. Uh, is the pleasure in knowing that you've done something that not necessarily reflects you, but that you know that your customers are going to enjoy? What is the of ultimate course. satisfaction for you? Of course, that, that's well, not for course. Because some chefs, I don't believe they have that that well, philosophy. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, to spend your life uh, visiting people, I mean, cooking for people. You know, it's a nice way, and especially in our area of, of polarization. You know, I mean, you can talk about food. That's about the only thing you can talk about. You know, but uh, yes, it is true. I mean, if I am in a restaurant. And if I do a rack of lamb, I will do it medium rare, just the way I like it. And if someone wants it very, very rare, someone wants it well done, I will do it the way they want it. They are paying for it too. I remember my mother. My mother ate a steak, and the steak that she had, she put it in the skillet, like 30 seconds on one side, 30 seconds on the other side. The steak was blurred. We say in front, it was cold inside, raw to, I, I would not have it. My father, on the other hand, like his meat well done, you know, and that's it. When you cook for someone, you cook someone to please them. If I cook for my mother, I would do it the way she likes. I cook for my father the way he likes. That's the way it should be, you know. I agree. Going back to those early days, uh, was, was there a mentor or two mentors who we wouldn't know today that you remember being very, very attached to you and uh, recognizing your talent early on and encouraging you? But I don't know if anyone, if I have any talent, anyone or recognize anything in a kid who cook, you know. You uh, you work at the store, and I think the chef there was uh, someone who went to school with my mother. That's how we get the contact and so forth. And he had a little restaurant in, uh, in Bourg-en-Bresse after. So uh, I, I saw him a couple of times when I came back from uh, from America to uh, I visited him. And, and, uh, but uh, to a certain extent, you know, when you work in, in those restaurants, as I said, the, from the Plaza Atelier to Maxime Fouquet's, uh, the Murray's, I worked that the idea was to conform. That if you go there, you do exactly what it's done there. So it's not a question of creativity. That comes later when you do your own stuff and you start doing the thing the way you want. So, but, you know, I mean, we are still uh, marchand soup, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're still mashed potato maker, so you cannot take it too seriously. You know? well, 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 what was the decision to, to come to New York? Well, that's a good point. I mean, most people come to America to get a better uh, economic life, usually for money or political reason or racial reason or religious reason, one of those things, which I didn't have any of those. I had a good job in Paris, you know, my, my mother had a restaurant in France, so, but I wanted to come to America. America was, and uh, you know, the, the Golden Fleece and the Toison d'Or. So I said, I'm going to go there for a year, maybe two years too. And I came here. Now, how old were you at the time, Jack? 2024. 20, okay. Yeah. So uh, people were extremely welcoming, uh, which is, would, probably would be different now. And people would tell me, why you come from such a beautiful country with so much culture, so much this? And I said, wow. 
Most people are nice. I go back to France, people tell me, what are you doing there? People don't even have any cheese, don't have bread there, don't have wine, which was true at the time, which is not true any longer. But uh, so uh, people were very, very welcoming, you know. So uh, so that probably one of the reasons that I stay, start working at the, at the pavilion. We work in one shift, which was a big deal already because Still at the Plaza Athenee, when I left, you work 9 o'clock in the morning, 2.30 in the afternoon. You have a break from 2.30 to 5.30. You start 5.30 to 10. So basically, your day is shut. There is nothing. At the Pavillon, uh, you know, you work either the morning or the afternoon shift. So I could go back to school and do many other things that I couldn't, uh, couldn't have done in France. Well, as long as you mentioned the Pavillon, which goes back, if I'm not mistaken, to the World's Fair of 1939, uh, right. not not your your best experience. Uh, we, uh, we shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but uh, Monsieur Soule uh, was right. not the kindest of men. No, but I mean, for me, I didn't really deal with uh, Soule much. I dealt with Pierre Frenet, who became ah. a great friend. In fact, when I first came, uh, the day after I arrived in the, in the U.S., I went to uh, uh, the, the sponsor that I had took me to the pavilion and the pier. I, uh, so I start with my certificate like we have in France. I work here. There. He said, well, I'm not particularly interested in this, uh, which was different. And I said, chef, he said, call me Pierre. I said, wow, that's already <laughs> quite different <laughs> than in France. So I become very friend with Pierre and I work with him. Well, at the pavilion at Howard Johnson for 10 years. So... Uh, uh, this is who I dealt with mostly. I mean, Soule was, uh, yeah, was, was really a very autocratic uh, type of person. And uh, but uh, you know, the, the, the cooking at the Pavilion was quite good. It wasn't in par, I think, with. It's an interesting part of it because, for example, the thing which I didn't have at the Plaza Athenee, forty-eight chef in the kitchen. There were three people at the grill. There were three grill, one for fish, one for meat, and all that, and. Uh, they were the largest in the kitchen chef de partie, the chef de party, the head of a department, were vegetable. Six people at the vegetable to do a book tier of vegetable, six, seven, eight vegetables. Well, one thing at the pavilion, there was no grill, there was only the broiler, and there was no vegetable guy. It's one guy was doing a bit of vegetable to give to the sauce and all that. I'm saying this because we look at American cooking now to much in terms of grilling and in terms of all kinds of vegetable. Well, we didn't have that at the time at all, you know. Well, you, I, you know, I had a conversation many years ago with Andre uh, Saltner, who oh, it, yes. makes the same comment you did. You found produce in Harlem. Uh, describe the state of American vegetables, because my favorite at the time was my mother's Del Monte cream-style corn. It was the only vegetable that had any flavor in the 50s. So uh, as, as someone growing up in France with the, the bounty that we have here, what was that like and how... I guess how happy and shocked were you to discover Harlem? Well, that was quite different. I mean, you know, I, rem I live on 50th and between 1st, 2nd Avenue, right midtown. And it's the first time that I went there with a small supermarket. A supermarket was opened there. First time I went in a supermarket. Uh, and I thought it was a great idea. You know, I'm going to the fish guy and the vegetable guy and the meat guy. So everything under the same roof, except everything, a lot of package, package, package. Meat was great. I mean, at beautiful steak, at lobster, at rack of lamb, at price that I wouldn't have in France. However, there was one salad that was iceberg. This is it. There was no leek, no shallot, no oriental vegetable, no great olive oil. So I remember saying, okay, where are the mushrooms? The aisle five. That was canned mushroom. 
So, you know, it was quite different than it is now, certainly. But at the pavilion, of course, we got a lot of uh, fish came from France. Uh, many vegetables came from uh, one farm or another. So uh, we had good good, uh, good ingredients, no question. Well, Alice Waters... Alice Waters gets a lot of credit for developing that in California, but uh, much earlier when you were there and people like Sultan were there and Pierre Freny, where did you source these uh, products that you, you, you couldn't find in the normal markets? That's true, but other, other, so we, 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 there was a market under the, the, the subway up in Harlem. When I started going to Colombia, uh, you know, I crossed, uh, I crossed a little park there uh, um, on the 120th Street, and I get into Harlem. At that time, we used to go with a friend of mine to listen to jazz at night. It was prior to to, uh, to the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, so mm -hmm. it was pretty safe. We go into Harlem, and it's the first time walking through 125th Street. I saw uh, a couple of markets where I saw kidney, stripe, another time too. I said, whoa, 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 I've never seen that here. So yes. Uh, there was actually uh, a little bit of a, of a diversity there in uh, in Ireland, more than maybe in Midtown Manhattan. You know, it's an interesting thing. You uh, rolling through a couple of years, you had this uh, amazing connection with Howard Johnson, and I want to come back to that because I, uh, I when I was a traveling salesman back in the late sixties, early seventies, I guess it was Monday. What might have been the chicken, and Wednesday the fish fry. That uh -huh. was about a a dollar sixty nine for dinner, and I, I was always look forward to chowing up on that particular day. But yeah. in your book, you talk about Howard Johnson as being uh, much more of a vision a visionary and giving you free reign. Uh, particularly, right. talk about the the clam yeah. chowder that you modified, what it was before you yeah. got there, and what it was after you got there. Yeah, well, it was interesting because uh, Howard Johnson, Howard D. Johnson, the father, the one who created the company. I think never went to college. I don't know whether he finished high school, but he already had a chauffeur and a, and a, and a, a driver, you know, with him. So he was a very charismatic, powerful guy, you know, you knew. And he came to my wedding, to the christening of my daughter too. So, uh, but at the pavilion, uh, he was a, uh, you know, a regular at the pavilion. That's why he had Pierre. And uh, I went with Pierre eventually. So uh, he said, well, if Jacques wants to work with us, he should work in the, one of our restaurants for a couple of months. So I went on Queens Boulevard. There was a big Howard Johnson there on Queens Boulevard. And it was the first time that I met, quote, American chefs. Because all the chefs that I knew in New York, big hotel too, were all French, Italian, a lot of Swiss, big hotel, Swiss, Italian, German too. But before the CIA, that is the Culinary Institute of America, started doing classes, there was no, I didn't know one white American chef. I get into Howard Johnson. All the kids working behind the stove were black kids. So that's the first time that I met, quote, American chef and working in a different way, of course, with the, the flat top and so forth. So I start working there within a few weeks. You know, I could flip burger and do stuff as fast as uh, anyone there. So it was uh, my first training with, uh, with uh, really American cooking. I mean, you know, I worked 10 years for Howard Johnson. When I left Howard Johnson, I opened La Potagerie, a restaurant on Fifth Avenue in New York. We did production of soup too. Then I opened the World Trade Center for Joe Bomb. We served 40,000 people a day. Then I was consultant at the Russian Tea Room. I'm saying that only to say I would never have been able to do any of those jobs without the training of Howard Johnson. As a French chef, I didn't know anything about production. 
marketing, chemistry of food, and so forth. So, well, you were running uh, the you were running the commissary. You were running. This was not just uh, how many meals a day were you putting out in that operation? Oh, uh, at the commissary we, we served. The main commissary was in Queens Village, New York, and at that point we served about three hundred fifty restaurants uh, a day. From that particular, uh, uh, I mean, there were there were four or five different commissaries in different parts of the country. In New Jersey, the commissary for ice cream, for example, the twenty eighth flavor. We are very well known than in, in, in Florida and so forth. But basically it was in the, in Quint Village that we developed recipe to in the in the kitchen. First time that I uh, get exposed to uh, the radar range at the time, which was the microwave oven or stuff like this, many new equipment that we tried to do, and then the production in the in the kitchen. So you know, from uh, doing uh, 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 you know 15 or 20 chicken to do a, 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 a chicken pot pie or whatever, we end up doing, you know, 4,000 pounds of, of chicken a day, you know, in 1,000 pounds, you know, like the, the even the, the, the fried clams, you know, the fried clam at, at that time, we had fried clam who probably don't exist nowadays. Those clams were enormous. They were probably <laughs> two pound clam who came from deep sea. They don't think they exist anymore. And uh, they opened them for us and we use only the tongue. The tongue on top, we put through a machine in long strip. That was the fried clam. The rest of the clam went into the chowder. You know, we did the New England clam chowder there. So it was very, very large production. I worked in the kitchen for at least three years uh, in the kitchen itself uh, before we set up the, uh, I mean, I had a little test kitchen there, but not much. And after that, we set up a larger test kitchen and I moved upstairs to the test kitchen. But for at least three years, I was doing in production. So that was, you know, hard work, and but fun and, and new. I mean, I was learning new things. Well, when you opened the potagerie, uh, I, I suspect that all these lessons you learned about volume and economies of scale were applied. Explain exactly what was the potagerie, not to be confused with La Bonne Soup, which still no, exists oh, yeah. around the corner. La Bonne Soup came out after, and it's a yeah. friend of mine who actually opened it. So Still, La, Potagerie, yeah. La Potagerie was uh, a couple of investors, uh, um, what was his name? I forget his name, uh, Cheresky, uh, Charlie Cheresky, he had a restaurant on, the, on, on, on Lexington and so forth. <coughs> his brother was a famous lawyer and two other lawyers, they came to ask me uh, to create a restaurant. So they wanted the... Uh, uh, the soupery or whatever. I said, no, potage is a little more elegant. So we did the potagerie between 45, 46 on, on Fifth Avenue. So we decided that, uh, so I set up the equipment in the kitchen. There are 50 gallon kettle, 350 gallon kettle. And uh, I work out the, the refrigeration, all the stuff in different ways so it would work in production for me. So we created three soup a day. We serve that. Uh, we had a beautiful uh, uh, copper bowl that we brought to the dining room. We put in front of it was a glorified cafeteria. You know, that's what it was. But uh, so those copper bowls there, we had beautiful bowl. We had uh, uh, a nice uh, lady serving with long dress. Uh, we take your tray and bring it to the table. And uh, so you serve a big bowl of soup. We had a baguette, a, a croissant, and the black bread that people could take whatever they wanted there the big bowl of soup, and then on a dessert, I had a piece of cheese, threw a fork into a, an apple, 
standing up. So you have that piece of sheet and apple, or I had a, an apple brown berry that I did. So you had the, you, your soup, your bread, uh, your, your salad, your dessert, <laughs> yeah. your dessert, and you have coffee, tea, or two if you want a glass of wine or a, or a beer. It was fifty cents, I think, at the time. But the menu was three three twenty five, uh, all included. And uh, no tipping, they bring it to the table, put your tray and people come in the restaurant. One way came out the other restaurant. We see 102 people and we've done up to 700 for lunch from 11 o'clock in the morning till uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. So it was a very large production and everyone was paid the same in the kitchen, you know, and in the, in, in the dining room. So I took my guy and, uh, uh, you know, I trained them. Uh, I had no professional starting with me because I work out the recipe and we cut the meat. We have special cutter for all of those vegetables and we set up those 50 gallon recipe soup and so forth. And in fact, uh, we, we finished the soup like 50 gallons with a stand five gallon container. And I re didn't realize at the beginning we get those things. I do three soups, so I have 10 of them. I don't know what to do with this. Uh, the soup are hot, they're going to spoil. I had worked out the refrigerator so that you open the door and any of those containers could slide into, and it was slightly inclined so that you have to pick up from one side, put on the other side so that the, you know, I organized that. And I realized after a few days, what am I going to do with all that hot soup? I mean, I cannot cook it. So fortunately I had the idea, we had a big uh, ice machine. So when I did like a, a black bean soup, so I'm supposed to put so much uh, stock and so much water and bean in it. So I reduced it to do about 35 gallons out of the 50 gallon, which I divided into those 10 containers. So it was thicker than it should have been. And I fill up the rest with ice and move it. That cool up my soup. And that's how I saved it. <laughs> oh, very, very creative, very inventive. Uh, well, that's what I learned. At how I I want to talk about Kalamazoo and Mr. Upjohn. We have to preface it by, without going into horrible detail, this this horrible accident that you nearly died in. And uh, you talk about that briefly, and then you were kind of at a loss of what to do. You couldn't stand behind a stove anymore. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I was I was a, a scare structure upstate New York weekend. That's how I met my wife, you know. So, and uh, one night. Uh, I was in tennis clothes, actually, I played tennis that day. I came back home and I went way, way too fast, trying to avoid that deal. Fall in a ravine and I ended up with 12 fracture. So I broke my back, my two hips. You know, uh, I still have a drop foot because I cut my sciatic nerve. So uh, they didn't think that I would live. And they didn't think that I would walk again. So it was a hard time for, for my wife. When I started, uh, you know, getting back together and... Uh, I had started, you know, I was, uh, at that time it was 1974, so I finished at Columbia. So uh, I had started, I think, writing for the New York Times and other and books. So I kind of moved in that direction more than in the direction of being behind the stove, uh, even though I still work behind the stove. And in the 70s, most of my time, I did it. It was a new thing in the 70s, the little cookware shop opening with a cooking school and cookware shop. Uh, all over the country, I started giving classes there and I ended up doing 30, 35 weeks out of the year going from one place to the other. But, you know, I give a class for two and a half hours. To go. It's certainly less taxing than it would be working in a store, in a restaurant, which is 12, 14 hours a day. So that, that kind of changed my life too. Well, Mr. Yeah, John inv but... invited you to Kalamazoo 
for what you thought was going to be four hundred dollars for three or four days. Oh, just... <laughs> it was when I was at the pavilion. Uh, it's Ju- Ju- Julia Childs, I knew at the time, called me. She said, "Do you want to do that? That guy is going to call you. I gave you your name." And it was uh, Mr. Hubjohn from uh, Kalamazoo. Yes, his wife wanted me, you know to cook with me, so he invited me. I went there with my my wife, and we cook a few a few days together today, and we become very friends. He died years later, but his wife still came with us in France. But at some point, I was taking a group from Boston University and Gloria to to France, uh, and uh, she came with us several times. So we had a good time together. And he, and as I said, I thought he was going to give me five hundred dollars, and uh, for like two days or three days, I never really discussed price. And he ended up giving me, well, I think five hundred dollars a day or whatever, plus plus a thousand dollars to my wife for. So he was very generous, yeah. Well, you mentioned Julia, so let's let's talk about Julia. And it, I, I assume that you were friendly with Judith Jones as well. Oh, yeah. Well, a I wonder, several, wonderful woman. Yeah, I did several books with him. I mean, maybe what I considered maybe my best book is The Art of Cooking. I did in the 80s. We did 34,000 pictures. Whoa. It took about five years. There's two volumes. Each volume is about 1,500 pictures. And it was with Judy Jones at Clough. And uh, it may be, in my opinion, maybe my best book. It's also probably the one who sold the least of anything that I've done. <laughs> but, you know, I went to, uh, to my pond here at uh, my house to pick up frogs so I can show you how to take the skin out of frog and then go on. I, I, I went fishing in Long Island to get a skate because to show you how to take the wing of skate because you can only buy the wing of skate. You cannot buy the whole one. I mean, I bought a whole baby lamb and so forth. Now, you didn't have to do it. You can start at picture 15 when it's all bought out and do the recipe. But people look at that and say, wow, I'll never do that stuff. So, uh, uh, But uh, yes, so I worked with Judy Joan there. In fact, when I started giving her the idea, uh, she said, yes, she loved it too. And then after she says too expensive with color separation at the time to do all those pictures, uh, and then she came back to me a couple of months later and she said, you know, unbeknown to anyone, uh, the company that she was with just bought a gourmet magazine. I said, well, great. <laughs> she said, well, they, if you want to do a thing every month for three years, uh, you know, 36 issues they want, uh, which they won't pay you of, out of the art of cooking there, then they will pay for the color separation. We can do the book. I said, great. And that's how we did the book, actually. Oh, <laughs> yeah, back- it was great. No, Judith was was an extraordinary person and uh, probably uh, one of the most influential editors in the food business uh, ever. The uh, she edited the uh, Camus in the in the in this Camus. Couch. She everything John Updike ever wrote. She yeah, discovered right. uh, the Diary of Anna Frank in in yeah. France. She was an amazing person. Uh, as, as was Julia. When I watch you and Julia together, it, it seems like you're having an enormous amount of fun. Although I know it's yeah, a lot we, of work and 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 time pressure. We did. I mean, you know, I met Julia with uh, Helen McCullough, with the food editor of McCall, House Beautiful, mm-hmm. which lived next to me in New York and became kind of my surrogate mother. Don't do this, do that. And one time she said, oh, I got a manuscript of a book here. I want you to take a look at it. It was mastering the art, the art of French cooking. She said, the woman lives in Boston. She's coming next week. You want to cook for her? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. She's a very tall woman and she had a terrible voice. <laughs> I said, <laughs> So we actually spoke French, my first meeting with Julia, because she just came from France, and she, her French was better than my English at the time. 
So we became friends and we stayed friends for basically half a century. So when we did the show together, conventionally, you know, I did 13 series of 26 shows for PBS in 35 years. So, and when we do those, usually on a 30 minute show, you do three, four recipe. Well, you usually come out with the manuscript of the book, working with it. So the back kitchen knows what to do. You organize it. And they usually wanted to do it on time because otherwise it's too expensive too. So uh, all of that I did for years. But when I did the show with Julia, we had no recipe. Say, okay, let's discuss the day before. We say, okay, let's do skew tomorrow. Let's do this, that too. So there was no recipe. So there was no contract. And then she told people, okay, we're going to cook. And when it's finished, we'll tell you. Some of the show were over 80 minutes, you know, that we did. So we had a bottle of wine, we had no recipe, and uh, we had all the time we wanted. So we had a good time that arguing. <laughs> it was more difficult for the cameraman because they didn't know where we were going to go or to. But it was fun for us, yes. Yeah, Actually, it, it took about, Judy Jones did the book, and it took her over two years, I think two and a half years after we finished uh, taping the series for the book to come out because... Uh, uh, we, we had no recipe. So, you know, she would call me, she said, what did you do in that recipe? How much carrot did you put? I don't even remember. <laughs> so they had to redo all that stuff. It, it took a couple of years before the, the book and the series came out because of that. Thank you for all that. We just have about a minute. I, 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 I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the beautiful paintings and drawings in your upcoming oh, book. You. If we get cut off, I, I've got yeah. it in, Jack. But beautiful stuff. I'd like to hang them in my kitchen. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Well, actually, I wanted to do a, a book of my painting. Well, I, I have an art site and a, and a friend of mine take care of it. He has a lot of my painting, but uh, there I wanted to do a book of uh, painting of fiction. And they say, absolutely. And right away, of course, they say, can we have recipe with it? I say, I don't want to give you. I don't want recipe. Well, my, my guest has been Jacques Pepin. It's been a, a pleasure, a privilege. And uh, my God, at 88, you look fabulous, Jacques. Oh, well, um, keep, you, keep doing whatever you're doing, eating whatever you're eating. And, yeah, uh, drinking. Drinking and, and keep, and keep working. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank okay, you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. And for all things Parisian, visit my website, paris-expat.com. That's paris-expat.com and subscribe to my six free weekly newsletters. Until next time, I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris.